Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. We are in Second uh, Samuel chapter 4 tonight. If you have your Bible, you can open there at this time. I've got to tell you, I, I did not think that I would enjoy studying the life of David as much as I am. Not that I thought it would be boring uh, or that I wouldn't, but I really am loving it. You know, it says in Romans 15, 4, it says that the things which were written before time or beforehand uh, were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. And uh, basically what that means is that God continues to speak through what he has already spoken. And I'm just loving David, I'm loving going through it and and being able to look at our world, our lives, uh, our future through the lens of what God did through that man and through uh, his people Israel during that time. And so what a blessing it is for us to be able to uh, look at these things and study it together. I'm going to pick up in chapter 4, verse 1. I'm going to read 17 verses right now. And I say it like that because it's a chapter and a half, but it's only 17 verses. So it's not really that much text. Uh, We'll go a little bit further than that in our study, but I want to catch the whole of it. So we'll read those verses, then we'll pray, and then we'll get into the word tonight. And so 2 Samuel chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, it says this. It says that when Saul's son heard that Abner was dead in Hebron, his hands were feeble and all the Israelites were troubled. And Saul's son had two men that were captains of bands. The name of the one was Baana, and the name of the other, Rechab. And the son, they were sons of Rimmon, a Beerothite of the children of Benjamin, for Beeroth was reckoned to Benjamin. And the Beerothites fled to Gittim and were sojourners there until this day. And Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son that was lame on his feet, for he was five years old when the tidings came of Saul and Jonathan, that is, the, their death, that they died, out of Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled, and it came to pass, as she made haste to flee, that he fell, she dropped him, and he became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. He'll come back into the story a little bit later on. Uh, not as any character of consequence, but just someone who David shows kindness to. And it says that the sons of Rimmon, the Beerothite, Rechab and Baana, these two men who were captains of uh, uh, platoons for Saul's army and then Abner's, it says that they went and they came about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who laid on a bed at noon. Now, uh, Ishbosheth is Saul's son, the one that we read of in verses one and two. He is the king. He's kind of a puppet king. Uh, and we see that he is worthy of that title. He is sleeping at noon, uh, which is something I don't think there's very many kings that do that. Um, and these guys that are captains of, of these platoons, they know that this guy is not competent to lead. And so it says, verse six, that they came thither into that midst of the house as though they would have fetched wheat. And they smote him under the fifth rib. There's a lot of people getting smitten under the fifth rib. That seems to have been the, the prime spot in that day. And Rechab and Baana, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he, that is Ishbosheth, Saul's son, laid on his bed in his bedroom, and they smote him and slew him and beheaded him. I mean, come on, do the job and leave. You got to be dramatic and messy about it. But they took his head and they got them away through the plain all night. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth unto David to Hebron. And they said to the king, 
Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, thine enemy, which sought thy life, and the Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day of Saul and of his seed. And David answered Rechab and Baana his brother, the sons of Rimmon the Berethite, and said unto them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of all adversity. When one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziklag, who thought that I would have given him a reward for his tidings. No doubt what these two men think David is about to do for them. How much more when wicked men have slain a righteous person? Ishbosheth did nothing wrong. In his own house upon his bed, shall I not now therefore require his blood of your hand and take you away from the earth? And he commanded his young men, and they slew them and cut off their hands and their feet and hanged them up over the pool in Hebron, made an example of them, said, it's not going to be like this anymore. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and they buried it in the sepulcher, the tomb of Abner in Hebron. Then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron, and they spoke, saying, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Also, in time past, when Saul was king over us, you was he that led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to thee, You shall feed my people Israel, and you shall be captain over Israel. So all the elders of Israel, the united tribes, all of them, came to the king to Hebron, and King David made a league with them, or a contract, a covenant with them, in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Don't you almost want to clap like you've been climbing? If you've been going, you've been going with him, and it's like it's finally here. And it says that David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah, the one tribe, for seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah, the united 12 tribes. David, now the king of the united Israel. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you, Lord, for your word. I want to thank you for the truth that it lays out and the fact that it's alive and that it still speaks today. And so we ask, Lord, that as we're here now, our hearts open, you have our attention. We pray that you would speak to us concerning the things that unfold before us and that are hidden in this text that are spoken to us, we pray that we would hear you tonight. Lord, you know what we need. We pray that you would be the need meter. So help us to hear. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember being a junior in high school and I took a health class uh, more by requirement than by choice, but I really liked the, the instructor. The teacher's name was Mr. Partridge and he was very char charismatic uh, and, you know, just kind of a cool guy, kind of a role model. And I remember on one particular occasion, we came in and we saw the big monitor up in front of the room, which meant that we'd be watching uh, something. And he wanted to show us a movie that, that he thought would inspire us and give us kind of a, 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 um, kind of a drive to, to persevere. And so he showed us the movie Rudy. Now, how many of you here by show of hands have seen the movie Rudy? Okay, many, many of you have. It's kind of a classic uh, from the 80s, and it really just kind of follows and tells the story, the true story of this uh, college football wannabe, we'll call him, and he was more or less a runt, but he had this desire to play college football, and, 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 and this man could work. So though he didn't have the talent, 
and he didn't have the size or the natural abilities uh, of some of the people. He worked harder than anyone else uh, in the organization, and the whole movie kind of leads to the climactic final scene where he finally gets to play, and he scores the winning touchdown at the very end of the last game of the season, and everybody carries him off the field, and it is like an epic tale of, of, of like the, the, the underdog coming out on top, you know, and, and, and that was the point of watching that movie, it was just like, yeah, and he was like, now see what happens, you can do whatever you want, you just got to put your mind to it and work hard and don't let anybody ever tell you, we were like, yeah, and that's, that's what that movie does, it's epic, but not long ago, I was made aware of a discussion that took place about that movie, and I heard the other side of the story. Not, not the other side of Rudy's story, but kind of the other perspective of the story. And that is, is this, is that where some people would say that it is the most epic cinematic material that ever exists in the realm of, of overcoming and persevering and, and, and achieving, uh, another side looks at it and says, it's not, it's not an epic win for perseverance, it's an epic fail, it's a crisis in self-awareness. That, that if, if Rudy, if someone had just taken Rudy aside and just said, Rudy, you are not a football player. You weren't made to be a football player. And it's not going to work for you in the long run. They could have saved him a whole lot of effort towards something that lasted just a minute and then went no further. And when I heard that, I thought, man, you know, you're killing it for me, but you're kind of right. <laughs> you know, I mean... I mean, he's not a football player. And, and, and yes, perseverance, I'm not downgrading that, not at all. But, you know, sometimes there's something to knowing who I am, knowing what I was made for, and not trying to be something I'm not just because I want to be really bad. And, and the reason why I open that way tonight in, in the study is because in our opening verses of chapter 4, as we read about the death of Saul's son, Ishboseth, two times in those opening verses, he is called by not his name, but rather by his position in relationship to Saul. In other words, two times it says Saul's son. The opening words of the chapter, it says, now when Saul's son heard that Abner was dead. Then again in verse 2, it said, and Saul's son had two men that were captains of bands. Now, I, when I read this, I look at it and I say, okay, in the Bible, everything is there on purpose and intentional. There's nothing there by mistake. There's no filler language that's just uh, saying something. And, and, and for me, I said, okay, why is, is he called Saul's son here? And, and we find out that it is Ishbosheth later on when it tells us a few verses down. And we've already met Ishbosheth before, so it's not a mystery of his name. But why is it that the Holy Spirit is addressing him here, not as Ishbosheth, but as Saul's son? And I believe that God is pointing out to us that Ishbosheth and the reason why he died in shame, failed to come to honor, and, and didn't live according to any good legacy was not because he was a bad man, for we hear that he wasn't a bad man, but he was a man who never found out who he truly was. The fullness of his identity was wrapped up in who his earthly father was. He was Saul's son. 
That was his claim. That's who he made himself to be. He propped himself up on the accolades of being the descendant of the king who reigned for 40 years and never came to realize his own identity, who he was, okay? So what we have is we have two men. We have Ishbosheth and we have David. One of them, Ishbosheth, he was a man who had a position that did not match his true identity. And the other one, David, had an identity that was sought out by, and eventually it caught him, the position associated with his identity. One was called a king, but he was not. One was a king, and the identity of that calling caught up with him when the men realized, okay, he's the one that God has chosen, okay? He's called Isboseth. That was his identity. Now, his name means son of shame. That's, I don't know why they named him that. Don't name your kid son of shame, the, you know, the whole thing. Uh, but he had no honor. He died in shame, and he was a king, but he was not a king. He was not made to be a king, and what he was made to be, we don't know. He doesn't know because he never came into that. We will never know. Now, you ask the question, why is this? What, what, Ishbosheth, it's a tragedy. It's a crisis in, in a life. You know, it was a wasted life. Why did this happen? Why is it this, this man never really came into his own, never realized who he was, what he was made to be, how he reflected the image of God uniquely in and of himself? Why is that? Now, I don't know the answer perfectly, but I do know that the culture of Saul's administration, King Saul, who is now dead, that the culture of his administration is that no one was allowed to have their unique and their own identity. Everyone was in some way a byproduct of Saul. For Saul, everyone existed for Saul. For Saul, Saul's kids existed for Saul. He was self-absorbed. He was self-consumed. Everything was always all about Saul. We read about Saul that when Jonathan, one of his other sons, when Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines, Saul blew the trumpet and took the credit for it. That even when David was going to go into battle against Goliath, Saul said, hey, wear my armor. At least make it look like it's me. Everything with Saul was always all about Saul. Now, I, I want to, to, to say something here that, that's very important, okay? Is that Saul did nothing as a dad. He did some things as a king, a lot of things wrong, maybe a few things right. But he did nothing as a dad to unfold or inform the identity of his kids. They were just, to him, something for him, all right? Understand this, dads and moms. It is our God-given role as parents to unfold and inform the identity of our kids. Now, I want you to mark my words. I said to unfold and inform the identity of our kids. I did not say to mold and shape the identity of our kids because that is not our role. We are not responsible for our kids' identity. We are responsible to help them and equip them to discover what it is. Their identity has been given to them by God. 
God made them in his image, unlike anyone else. They don't look exactly like us. They don't behave exactly like us. They don't think exactly like us. But God has given us the privilege and the responsibility to help inform and unfold what he has placed inside of them. Part of of the problem with the education system in the United States of America is that the education system has turned this whole concept of identity, being, being an individual person made by God uniquely, has turned it into a diner menu. The education system has handed to kids a list of things that they can choose from to be and said, pick something on this menu. And, and that's your identity. And kids go look at it and they go, okay, uh, uh, okay, I like video games. I like TV. I'm a computer programmer. Okay, and they pick something on it. Now, God doesn't do menus and God doesn't do dishes. God does ingredients. God puts things in people. He puts desires. He puts attractions. He puts hobbies, talents, abilities. He puts things inside of us and then he leaves it to discovery and unfolding for us to figure out who he has made us uniquely based upon what's inside of us, okay? Your identity, the identity of an individual human being is something that is written in you. It's written in your soul. You cannot create your identity. Did you know that? You cannot, like Rudy, just say, I'm gonna be a star football player. That's who I am. No, it isn't. You are created by God and your identity has been created by God. You can't create it. You cannot shape it. You can't take what it is and say, well, I'm not pleased with it. I don't really like it. So I'm just going to cut certain things off and become something else. You can't do that because it's been given to you by God. The third thing, you can't create it. You can't shape it. You also can't escape it. You can't get away from it. You might not like it because, you know, for some reason you don't like yourself or you don't understand yourself or whatever it is, but you can't escape who you really are because that's something that's been put in you from God. Now, human beings, every single one of us, we have a default setting inside of us. And that setting, there's something inside that is driving us from the time that we're young, to figure it out, to figure out who we are. Who am I? Why am I here? What do I exist for? What is my purpose? What is life all about? Why do I have these thoughts? Why do I like these things? Why am I screwed up? All these things that are going on inside of us, we are driven to find out who we are. It's kind of like, you know how like your cell phone, right? And I don't know if this is, if they've figured out how to fix this, but I always have like an eight-year-old phone because it's not my thing, you know, but, but like my phones, it seems like when I'm out of, out of range, all they do is try to find a signal and the battery will go from hundred percent to like 4% in about three minutes because it's using all of its energy just to try to find a signal. And it's kind of the same thing in us is that until we really know who we are, We are driven to find out. It's what we are made to do, okay? Now, all that to say is that if we, as parents of our kids, do not help them to unfold and we don't inform and give everything we can to helping them, they will look other places to try to figure it out. 
because that's what they're going to do. And they will ultimately, and I know this because I am this or have been this in another life in another time, they will attach their identity to someone else's just to have one. And that is a dangerous place to be. When you think that you are someone else, you will wander through life. You say, well, how do we do that? And, and, and so I want to look at this contrast between Saul and David. But first, before we do, verses 8 through 12, as we leave Ishbosheth headless in his bed, we see that David kills these assassins. David is a man different from Ishbosheth. He knows exactly who he is. And he is not a reflection of King Saul who came before him. See, Saul would reward assassins who killed his enemies. We know that because Saul enticed people with rewards for killing his enemies. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 7, when Saul was having a pity party, he looked at all of his men and he said this. The verse should go up on the screen. Uh, he said, none of you care, maybe it won't, you know, but basically he said, none of you care that the son of Jesse is against me. And he goes, will the son of Jesse give you fields and vineyards and rewards and crowns and positions for, for what you do? And they all said, you mean if we, then we get, and they said, yeah. And that was the way Saul did business. So now these guys think, okay, new king, new opportunities. So they kill Ishbosheth. They see they can't defeat David, and they bring his head, and they think, this is going to be great. Think about it. Beata, the captain of the guard. You know, I killed the king's enemy. You know, and the whole thing. He comes to David. David knows exactly who he is, and David knows he's not Saul. David knows his kingdom, his leadership is not going to be like the leadership of Saul that his kingdom is going to be one that works by service and love and not by threats and, you know, the kind of corruption that Saul led by and led under. And so David sees these guys and he goes, whoa, whoa, wait, who, what did you do? Don't you realize, like, no, it doesn't, it's not going to work like that anymore. He says, I'm going to, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you honor. I'm going to give you very unique honor right now. You are going to be a trophy and an example of what not to do throughout the whole entire reign of my kingdom. And he says to the young men, cut off their hands, their feet, and their heads, hang them up over the pool of Hebron until they rot there, and everyone can see that that's not the way we're going to do things anymore. See, David was not the shadow puppet of what he saw in someone else. David was not coming to power going like, oh, I got to fake it till I make it. I have to figure out how to be a king now. And, and how did Saul do it? He did it for 40 years. I could read some of his books and maybe I could apply some of his principles. And though he wasn't perfect, no, no, David was like, no, I know exactly who I am. And this isn't the way I am. This isn't the way that I'm going to be. So he kills these two guys that try. Now we come to David. And I want you to notice what these men say of David when they anoint him king. Look at it again. It's chapter 5, verse 2. All the men of Israel come to David now from every one of the tribes, including Benjamin. And they say this, also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were he that led out and brought in Israel. In other words, David, what we know of you is that you were the king when you weren't the king. Then they said, 
that you, or that the Lord said unto you, that you shall feed my people Israel, and you shall be captain over Israel. God spoke over your life. God wrote in you that you are going to be the king over Israel, and that you're going to lead his people in and out. And so it says then in verse three that all the elders of Israel came to the king in Hebron and King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel. They said, we heard what God said and we see what God's done. And now the men of Israel, listen to this, they ratified what they already recognized. In other words, they saw that God had put in David the identity of a king. It was in him. It's who he was. And they didn't come and say, well, you're the next best choice, or we need someone to fill this position. They said, we have watched your life from the time that you've been young. We've seen the way that you've conducted yourself. We have heard what God said of you, and then we saw God build that in you. And we see that your identity matches up now with the position that we are making you for or putting you into. You are the king. They, rec- they ratified what they first recognized. Listen to me, because David, his identity matched the position that has now caught up with him. And the two things come together. I want you to understand this, is that we do not choose our identity. We receive it from God, and then we discover what it is. All right? Listen, if you are a parent here, and you want to unfold your kids, and you want to help inform the identity that God has given to them, you cannot do that unless you first know your own. You cannot inform someone else's something that you do not have for yourself. And you can't change what it is. It is for you to discover what God has placed inside of you. I was listening to a segment on the radio today, and uh, if you heard it, then then, you're you're getting it a second time. Maybe you did. But there was a discussion uh, taking place about um, the, the transgender theme movement. And, and, and what, they, what they were saying is that uh, that, whole, that whole thing has changed names three times now. Where, whereas back at the beginning, we used to call it a sex change. You know, oh, that guy or that girl, they got a sex change. You know, we knew what that meant. It meant that they flipped genders, you know. But that was, that was just too harsh. That was too non-inclusive. That was too hateful to say that. And so, so then it changed so, so now, so after that, then it became not a sex change, but it's gender reassignment. It's gender reassignment. We're just going to reassign a gender because the gender that they were born with, that was a mistake. That didn't fit with what they were deep on the inside. And so now they're going to reassign and they'll set things right. They're going get, to get it right. But then it was like, well, it's not really a reassignment because that's what they were all along. It's that they didn't reassign the gender. They already were that gender. They're just now realizing it. And so they said, we can't have that. So now it is no longer called a sex change. It is no longer called uh, gender reassignment. It is now called gender confirmation. That's, that's what it actually is now. It's, I'm gonna, it's gender confirmation. I am confirming or affirming the gender that I was given, and for some reason, I was born with the wrong parts, the wrong chromosomes. You know, that was a mistake. Listen, I, I, I mean, I say it because it's crazy. 
you can't change what you were made. Whether it be in the chromosomes and the parts, or whether it be in the invisible substance that exists in your soul that was made by God. You can't change it. You cannot be administrative and try to say, I'm chaotic. You can't. You can do it for a little while, but ultimately, if you're an organized person, you're going to flip out and organize everything because that's what you were made to do. It's inside of you, and you can't get away from it, okay? Listen to me. One of the best investments you can make in your life, and I hope I'm only talking to young people, but I'll talk to everybody. One of the best investments that you can make in your own life is to figure out who you are. More important than education. Education is valuable. It's more important than college. College is valuable sometimes. It's more important than making a lot of money or even feeding yourself. It is more important. It's along the same lines of kind of what Solomon was saying to his kids when he was saying, listen, in everything that you get, get wisdom. It's, it's far more valuable than gold, rubies, get it, okay? Because it'll help you in every other thing. Listen, you find out who you are and life is gonna work out for you. Okay, there's more to it than that because you also need Jesus Christ. You can't figure out who you are without Jesus Christ. So don't think that I'm preaching a gospel void of Christ. I'm not. Okay, we'll get to that a little bit later on. Okay, but, but many parents, what happens is that parents will push their kids, well-intended, into the same path that they themselves took, okay, because it helps provide a good living. Not realizing that they themselves are miserable in the living that they're providing, and not enjoying the life that they're living, but because it worked thus far, I'm alive, I'm kind of healthy, you know, you do it too. And they push their kids, go to school, go to college, get a job. And, and the kid's going like, what? Uh, I don't know who I, I don't know anything, but I have, well, I'm buying clothes. Okay, it's working out. No, it's not working out. It's not what you were made. It's not who you are. Figure it out, okay? I didn't say figure out what you want to do. I said figure out, who you are. It's much more valuable because sometimes what you want to do doesn't necessarily fit who you are, i.e. Rudy, right? So I really want to be a professional golfer. One arm is longer than the other. It's not going to work. You know, it's just not what God put in you. Paul the apostle he really, really wanted to be an apostle to the Jews. It's what he wanted to do. It seemed like it fit, but it wasn't who God made him to be. And so he tried to do what he wanted to do, but he was continually frustrated and unfruitful in what he was trying to do because it wasn't what God made. It wasn't until he surrendered to what God made him to be, an apostle to the Gentiles, that he began to see fruit in his life and enjoy what he was doing. It doesn't mean it was easy. It's not easy, but it fit and it bore fruit. It's who he was, okay? If you really know and embrace who you are, then what you do will fit you and you'll enjoy even hard things. You say, how does one figure out who they are? How do you come to realize, who am I? Who God did you make me to be? I'm glad you asked that because the scripture tells us the answer. It's in the New Testament book of Romans, chapter 12. 
And listen to what Paul says here, because this is the answer as to how to figure out who you are if you don't know yet. He says this. He says, I beseech you or beg you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Okay? Step one is lay everything that you are before God Almighty who made you and say, okay, God, you made me. Please, would you unfold and inform my identity? The good news is, he says here, because of Jesus Christ, when you come to God that way, he accepts that. He doesn't say, well, I don't really like you. You know, so good luck. Go figure it out. No, he says, because of my son Jesus, if you'll come to me in humility, acknowledging who I am, acknowledging my son, if you'll come to me realizing that I'm the God that made you and the only one that can inform you of you, then I am pleased to accept the sacrifice. Now watch what he says. He says, it's your reasonable service. And then he says, and be not conformed to this world. In other words, stop looking at the menu of what everyone else is to try to inform who you are because you're not gonna find out who you are there. Don't be conformed to what you see in someone else. It's wrong. It's, it's not the answer. You might say, well, that person is a whole lot like me or I want to be a whole lot like them. It doesn't work. You'll be frustrated. You'll waste time. Don't be conformed to anything that you see in this world, but rather, he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You could, if you wanted, you could use the word informed in the context of looking or asking about your own identity. Be informed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove, watch this, that you might know with proof for sure, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? That as you present yourself to him and then allow your mind to be renewed according to his truth, his person, his ways, his spirit at work in your heart and in your life. And did you notice that it's in the continual tense he says, present yourselves, he says that uh, it's a, uh, by the renewing of your mind. Did you see that? He didn't say by having your mind renewed once and it's done. He said, no, but by the renewing of your mind, that as you continually seek after God and continually lay your life before him and continually be transformed according to his word, you are going to determine, discover, and prove what is that perfect and good and acceptable will of God for your life. And when you do that, you, who you are, will unfold. You will come into its discovery and you'll prove it. And your place then will find you. That's what happened to David. David was made king by God and the position caught up with the person. David didn't chase the position. He became the person and the position found him. And that's how it works, okay? While you're in that process, enjoy your life. Enjoy what God has given you today. I believe that in this somewhere is, is somewhat of the essence of what Jesus meant when he said, if you lose your life, you'll find it. When you stop trying to control, create, and make yourself into something, and you surrender to the will of God for your life, you are going to, in that, discover what your life actually is. It's found in him. And I ask you this question tonight before we leave this segment. And that's this, do you really know who you are? Do you really know who you are? 
In Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus was speaking to one of the seven churches, and he gave them this promise. He says, to him that overcomes, he said, I will give uh, to eat of the, what was, is that the wrong one? Go to the other part of the verse. Yes, and I will give him a white stone and in the stone a new name written, which no man knows, saving he that receives it. Okay, in other words, God has given you a name. I, I used to think that in heaven, like God had like this roll call and he would say, Mike! And like 40 billion people would go, here, you know, like Smith, John Smith, are you here? You know, it doesn't work like that. God, as individual as your face, your fingerprint, and you who you are, God has given you a name. Your name is your identity. And let me tell you something. Your identity is not Saul's son or the son. You, God made you intentionally on purpose. And it is your birthright from God to know who he made you to be. And he's the only one that can discover that to you. Okay, now, in terms of being a parent, all right, once you know who you are, which is the first part, then don't mold them, just help them unfold. Help them figure it out. It is true, okay, that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. But it is also true that the apple looks nothing like the tree, right? And so we have a part to play in unfolding our kids, not shaping them to become what we are, all right? So how do we do that? We talk to them. We inform them of the things that we have learned, the things that we understand, the mistakes that we made, our family history and the things that we know about our parents and grandparents and the mistakes that they made and the things that happened to them that informed us to help us figure out who we were. We share those things with our kids openly. We tell them, watch out for this because there's going to come a time when this temptation is going to come to you because it came to me and came to my parents and just watch out for it. Here's your on guard for it. It's to give them the wisdom of the word that God has given us and to illuminate life for them in the way that he has. And it is our role to do that. And if we don't, then someone else will inform an identity that maybe doesn't belong to them. And we must, as parents, do that. And then finally, we must leave them in God's hand. Okay, let's move on from uh, where we left off there in verse 5. And let's move on from 6, and we're going to finish at verse 16. So uh, don't think that, that, that we're going to be here all night. It says this, it says, and the king, David's first act now is king. It says that he and his men went to Jerusalem unto the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spoke unto David saying, except you take away the blind and the lame, you will not come in here thinking David cannot come in here. All right, now David as king of the United 12 tribes now, he has been reigning in Hebron and he wants to move the headquarters of his kingdom from Hebron to Jerusalem. Okay, there's three reasons why David wants to do this. Number one is that it's strategic. The stronghold of Zion. It is a secure city. That's why the Jebusites that are living there now think David can't get in. It's a very strategic place to have home base in Israel. It's strategic. It is also political. Hebron, where he is, is squarely set in the tribe of Judah. But Jerusalem is right on the border between Judah and Benjamin. And Benjamin was the tribe of Saul. And for David, it is a politically strategic move 
Because he is saying, okay, I am not just the king for those that are the tribe of Judah, but I am the king also for the tribe of Benjamin and for all of them. And so there's political wisdom in what David is doing in this. But then thirdly, it is also spiritual. Because God said, when he brought his people into the land of Israel, he said that I am going to choose out a place and I am going to set my name there. And then he showed it to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, and it was Jerusalem. God already knew that this was the place that it was to be. Furthermore, did you know that God actually did write his name there? I pulled this up. This is, was from Google Images. It should go up on the screen right now. But if you look from a, from a, from a, 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 a you know, Goodyear blimp, an overview of the land, and you actually see the river valleys and the ridges and the way that it is, God's name is literally written in that land. If you look at it, you see it right there, right in Jerusalem. God wrote his name there. He said, I'm going to show you where I want the capital to be, where my temple is going to be built, where will be the center of my nation, because I'm going to put my name on it. And God did. He just wrote his name right there. That's graffiti. I think we could charge him. <laughs> you know, for it. He wrote it right in the thing. But it is a spiritual thing. God said, this is where I want it. Okay, so David goes there, and the Jebusites say, there's no way you're taking the city. And they said, we are so fortified in here that the watchmen are lame and blind. They can't fight and they can't see. We are so secure, we don't need security cameras. We don't need watchmen, trumpets, pirate alarms. We don't need any of it. You can't get in. And so they taunted David, and they said, yeah, you know, it's not going to happen. Nevertheless, verse 7, it says that David took the stronghold of Zion, the same as the city of David. And David said on that day, whosoever getteth up the gutter and smites the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Wherefore, they said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. David says, okay, you're going to say, you're going to say that the lame and the blind are able to fortify the city. You might be speaking of people, but I think you're speaking of your gods. In other words, the Jebusites served the gods that were idols. And those gods were lame and they were blind. And David said, what you're trusting in cannot save you. It cannot help you. And that's why it says that they were hated of David's soul. It's not like David hated people that couldn't see. That's not the kind of man that he was. He was speaking of their gods and he knew it. And so David makes a declaration to his men. And he says, look, guys, you see that sewer drain right there? Whoever has the courage to go in that sewer drain and climb all the way up into the city and take the city, that person will be the chief and the captain of my uh, armies. They will be the general. Now, who do you think did it? Have you been tracking with us? There's a very power-hungry man in David's administration. His name is Joab. And Joab says, ah, I've been waiting for this. And Joab says, I'll do it. I always like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I'll go in. So he goes in and he shimmies up this, this gutter, this waistline, and he gets into the city and he wreaks havoc inside of it and he takes it for David. We're not told that it's Joab here. You read that in the Chronicles. But it says in verse 9 that David dwelt in the fort and he called it the city of David. And David built roundabout from Millo and inward. And David went on and grew great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. I absolutely love that verse. 
is that David came to a place where he has now achieved his goal, but he doesn't stop. He doesn't say, I got what I was promised, and so now let me just coast. He keeps on moving, and God keeps on blessing. God keeps on growing him. He moves on. He grew great, and it says God was with him. And it says that Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. You know, I love the way God works. And I don't know if you've ever had a moment like this in your life where, you know, you walk with God uh, for some time. And I've been walking with him a little bit over 20 years. And, you know, I don't say that in any way to my credit. I'm way less mature and spiritual and developed and advanced than I should be. But, but in 20 years, I've been walking with him. And I've had these moments along the way where I look around at my life and I say, how did I get here? How did this happen? Because I remember the days walking in the woods, yelling at God because I couldn't figure out what he was doing and feeling like I was deceived into following him because nothing made sense. And in my mind, in those days, there's no way God is ever going to do anything good for me in my life. And then you keep going, you go on, you move forward, and you come to a place where you're like, wait a minute, when did this happen? Like, wh- when, when, did he, uh, when did I get five kids that actually have square heads on their shoulders? Right now, let me, asterisk, right now, they have, how did this happen? You know, and, and that's where David's kind of at here. He's, he looks around and he goes, wait a minute, wait, I'm the king. And God's way of doing that. Acts chapter 12, Peter's in prison. He's set to be beheaded the next morning. An angel comes, wakes him up, tells him to put pants on, breaks the chains, puts the guards to sleep, leads Peter out through the streets. He goes down the house and the whole thing. And Peter's standing there going like, wait a minute, wait. That was God. That was God. God did that. You lived it. But God has such an amazing way of doing things in a way that we don't see him doing it while he's doing it. And then when it's done, we go, how did that happen? And that's David here. He goes, oh my, oh my goodness. He has made me king. He has fulfilled his promise. He's done it for his people's sake. And no matter what I do, it just is, is blessed. It's blessed. It's blessed. It's blessed. God, you're so good. Then David makes a huge mistake. Verse 13. It says, And David took him more concubines and wives out of Jerusalem after he was come from Hebron. And there were yet sons and daughters born to David. And these are the names of those that were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Jephia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphat. Now, I don't know all of the wives and the concubines that David took, but the context of what is played out here before us is that as a result of David saying, wow, God, you're with me. God, you've blessed me. God, you're going to keep doing what you've already been doing, not for my sake, but for your people's sake. And something happened in the mind of David that can happen to any one of us where he said, God's going to keep doing good 
even if I compromise the rules a little bit. And David does what was forbidden for kings to do. He multiplies. He says, I can take a few more wives. It's just a little vice I have. I am the king. It's culturally acceptable. I'm just going to do it. And nothing bad's going to happen. David is sowing seeds in the soil of his soul early on here that are going to germinate into something that is way beyond his ability to control. And it is going to wreak havoc in the later years of his life. Do you realize that the things that show up in your life are the germination of seeds that you planted in there a long time ago that you thought would never come to anything? It's going to happen to David. Let me read you a passage I read in my devotions uh, over the past couple of days. It's from the book of Deuteronomy, and it's chapter 29 in verse 18. And it's kind of the end of the book, and God is talking to his people. And he says, listen, if you just do things the way that I've instructed you to do them, then your life is going to be so good, you're gonna, your head is going to spin. You're going to love your life so much. But, and this is what he says, Deuteronomy chapter 29, uh, what did I say? What verse is it? I want to start in the right place. 18, he said this. He says, lest there should be among you a man or a woman or a family or a tribe whose heart turns away this day from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, lest there should be among you a root that bears gall and wormwood. Now, did you hear what God said there? He said, a man or a family or a tribe, okay? David is the king, but before David is the king, what is David? David is a man. And he thinks that because he is the king, that he can bear, have a root that bears gall and wormwood and that no bad thing is going to happen to him because of it. And it come to pass, verse 19, that when he hears the words of this curse, that he bless himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in the imagination of my heart. In other words, I can disobey something that God said on XYZ grounds, And it's going to work out for me. God established me for his people's sake. God is blessing me for his people's sake. He's not going to, nothing bad's going to happen. This is bigger than me. So I can compromise in this area and it's going to be okay. But notice what God says is going to be the result. It's the last five words of verse 19. And I want them to burn into your soul. Not because I'm cruel, but because I love you that much. Listen, he says to add drunkenness to thirst. I think those are some of the most profound, instructive, fatherly words in the entire Bible. In the Bible, thirst doesn't speak of needing water because you've been running out in the summer sun too long. Thirst is a need that you have in your soul in the Bible. When Jesus said, I thirst on the cross, it was representation of the fact that his soul was bare for the first time. It was empty. He was thirsty. He was needy. He was needing something. And every single one of us, because of the fall and because of sin, we understand thirst. We have a need in our soul. And what we will do is that we will choose something to temporarily cover over the thirst inside of us because it makes us feel satisfied in a moment. 
not thinking about whether or not it is actually going to quench the thirst that we really have. Remember when you were a kid, or, or maybe it was just, you know, my prudish good parents, but we'd come in and we were thirsty. You know, we'd been drink, sweating, playing sports outside. We'd come in, open the fridge, you take a two-liter bottle of Mountain Dew, and you just go gloop, 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 into, the, into like the big gold cup, and you're just like, you just can't wait, right? And, and what did your parents say? That's just going to make you more thirsty, Right? I don't know. Am I the only one? <laughs> you know, but that's what they'd say. That's, my, even my friend's parents said that. That's just going to make you more thirsty. You're like, maybe so, but I'm going to try it anyway. I want to I drink this right now. Listen, here's what God is saying. He's saying, if you try to handle a thirst, and we all have them, and you try to handle them in a way that is contrary to what God has said is the prescribed means of having thirst quenched, then not only are you not going to ultimately have your thirst quenched, but you are going to add drunkenness to thirst. In other words, you are still going to be thirsty, but now you're going to have an addiction that you're going to have to deal with. Because you learned how to temporarily cover over a hurt or a pain or an emptiness that you have inside with something that can't satisfy, but you got temporary relief. So where are you going to go when you feel that pull? You're going to go to the thing that temporarily covered it over. You're going to add drunkenness to thirst. And I will propose to you that every single addiction that can happen to a human being is the result of mismanaged thirst. We're not handling it the right way. You say, well, what is the right way to handle it if everyone's thirsty? I will tell you because Jesus tells us. He said it in John chapter 7, verse 37. He stood up on the great day of the feast in the presence of everyone, and he said, if any man thirst, and if anyone was spiritually awake and alive in that day, he had their attention. I thirst. I have a thirst that I have been trying to fill with money for years, and I can't fill it. I have a thirst that I've been trying to fill with sexual gratification for years, and I can't fill it. I have a thirst that I've been trying to fill with substances, with alcohol, with experiences, with wanderings, with ruining my own life. I have been trying to fill this thirst, and no matter what, I'm just more thirsty. And Jesus says, if any man thirst, someone there's going like, yeah, what? Let him come to me and drink And out of his inmost being will flow torrents of living water. And then John gives the commentary and he says, this spake he concerning the Holy Spirit, which was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, the reason why God says, just do it this way. Just listen to what I'm saying. Just come unto me. Because I, God says, I understand thirst. I understand the need of your soul and I alone know how to meet it. You say, well, yeah, okay. So what does that mean? I come to Jesus. I've got a thirst for something that he forbids. I'm not supposed to do it that way. I'm supposed to just, I have a temptation to drink and I'm just supposed to come to Jesus and read the Bible and that's supposed to fill it. Is that how it works? No, that's not how it works. It works when you, by faith, come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you said that you're the one that can satisfy completely and lastingly the craving that I have inside that I can't even understand or define. And I'm going to trust you to be the one that as you lead my life that you're going to fill it. 
And he does not magically just go, boom. And you're like, <laughs> I don't want it anymore. No, no, no. Here's what he does. We walk with him and he leads us into his ways whereby our thirsts are quenched. He gives us a spouse and a family and wholesome things. And he blesses our life and he fills our soul with his treasures to the point where we, like David, say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22, it says that the blessing of the Lord, that maketh rich. And listen, and he adds no sorrow with it. Meaning that when we say, okay, God, I'm going to do it your way. You say, don't satisfy with the temporary release. You say, don't give yourself to things that have no profit or value. You say, don't have idols. And you, so I'm going to do it your way. He says, okay, good. And then we walk with him. We go forward and we begin to see him fill our lives with good things. And there is no addiction that we have to deal with in the midst of what's going on in our life. Because we say, well, God, I'll give you everything but this. I think there's a common theme. You need to know your identity. Where do you go? Go to Jesus, right? He's the one that made you. He's the one that formed it. He's the one that spoke you into being, knows every fiber of who you are. Every one of us has a thirst, a thirst need that's individual to who we are. How is it met? Go to Jesus. He said, come to me if you're thirsty and out of your innermost being from the inside, it will flow out of your life. I think what he's trying to tell us is that we can come to him. That if we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, he calls them holy and acceptable. And he says that we can be transformed by the continual renewing of our mind as we walk in fellowship with him and that we can prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And we can know who we are, and we can be fruitful in our purpose and cause, and we can enjoy our life, and we can know him in the process, and maybe bear some fruit along the way. If you don't know him tonight, I encourage you to find out who this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is. If you don't know who you are tonight, I implore you to lay your life before the one who made you and say, would you untangle all this and show me what's going on here? And if you have a thirst tonight that for years you have been filling in some other way, there is nothing too hard for him to come and fill, even if you've made the void really, really big. Father, we just thank you tonight. We pray, Lord, that you would help us as we consider who you are we look at these things. Lord, we ask, would you speak to us? Would you help us to find you? Would you make the adjustments that are necessary? Lord, we need you. Lord, we love you. We know that you loved us first. So lead us, Lord, in your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, 
leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.